Hold on. There, now everybody should be able to hold, hear me? How's that now, everybody? I'm going to assume it's good. I see everything moving on here. So nobody got to hear the opening. That's fine. Uh, ben probably had enough of what he was chatting about there that everybody got the gist of it. Episode 192, kind of an open chat. There was a list of things that Ben wanted to touch on uh, for basic skills on getting, you know, that you should have in a bushcrafting environment. And I had some ideas that I want to throw in as we we're going along too. So everybody hopefully is caught up now on my end. Keep on rowing, Ben. You mentioned, and, and there's one that I've always found interesting, and I've rarely tried it, but uh, it's boiling it in a, in a paper bag, um, right? As long as the paper never gets above, what is 415 Fahrenheit, I'm not sure, the Celsius one, it won't actually ignite. And if there's water inside the bag, it can never ignite. So uh, that being said, there's limitations to that. Be very careful if you try to do, try this method. Paper doesn't really hold water super great anyways. But you can do it. It's doable. And like you said, uh, bottles, it can be done in tin cans. You can do it in uh, pots. Just rocks a in a hollow and putting hot rocks in it. I was just going to say, um, you can hollow stuff out and you can put uh, heated up rocks in. That'll that'll cause boiling as well. Um, no, I was going to say something. Oh, yeah. Something... Food for thought. If you're going to use a glass container of some sort to boil water, say you're in a survival situation, all that good stuff... Uh, realize much like paper, glass can become brittle with the heat hitting it directly. So if you're going to be using a glass container of some sort, make sure that your heat or your fire never licks up past where the water level is. Otherwise you're going to run into a higher probability of a cracking, shattering, things like that. Uh, not that it's, you know, perfectly fine. Otherwise it is glass. Uh, and it is a little temperamental when it comes to heating, cooling. So just be aware, you know, a little more aware of that, but, uh, still can be done. I've done it myself, uh, just a lot more cautiously. Yeah. Um, the next one I like to cover, and I think this is a really important one too, is shelter building. And, and that, that varies, you know, this is a great one because all skill levels can do some degree of, of uh, shelter building. You can get to some pretty advanced long-term shelters, some pretty advanced short-term shelters. You can buy pre-made things like tents and hammocks with, with uh, like tarps type shelters over them to, um, you know, snow huts, things like that. So the amount of shelters you can make is almost unlimited. Um, when you're making like natural shelters, I, I heard a really interesting thing. You make it out of whatever you have the most of. <laughs> and you've heard of this before, right? Yeah. So whatever your most plentiful material is around you is basically what you're going to be using to build your shelter. Now, on that note, uh, there are some basic shelter building techniques or principles which you can apply from shelter to shelter, like properly supporting uh, a ridge pole or a ridge line or something like that, something that's going to keep your weight. You need to be able to support that, tie it off, mount it down into the ground, however you want. But if you just dangle a thin piece of wood between two thin branches and stack a whole bunch of weight on it, you're going to kind of see where this is going to go. It's going to collapse on you really quick. So if you can get the basic principles of how to like mount some basic poles together by putting Y's in them and interlocking them or a little cordage, whatever your method happens to be, these are the principles you can kind of practice on that and build on it. And then like Ben said, at the end of the day, there's really no right or wrong way as long as it keeps the weather out, keeps you warm. Right. So, and, and by what I mean, whatever materials you have, if you're in the woods and you have tons of trees, then you have wood. 
If you're in a really rocky space, you have lots of rocks, then you can use rocks. If you're in an open field, and there's nothing but grass for miles and miles. As far as you can see, you can make a grass hut where you literally pile the grass, you cut sods, dig down a little bit. You can build a hut that will literally stand almost anything, right? So pretty well, regardless where you're to, sand is a hard one. Sand does tend to collapse, but even then there is methods. So <clears throat> learn your, your environment take what you can, but being able to build a shelter to protect yourself from the wind, the sun, the rain, uh, animals, anything else that could be potentially coming after you, giving yourself that secure place is an awesome bushcrafting skill. And it's something to be practiced, you know, try it in different methods, try different tools, try different equipment, you know, um, me and you, Robert, I think every time we've gotten together, we've tried some different type of shelter. Right. Yeah, and we always talk about how we use our hammocks and tarps, and granted, that is kind of our go-to, but it's not exclusively what we use. As Ben said, we always try something different, you know what I mean? Yeah. So we get out there, we always have a backup, that's why we constantly talk about the hammocks and tarps, because it's tried, tested, and true. But we still get out there and we try other methods, different things we want to try in building a shelter. Uh, the last one out for me was I was trying a natural shelter in kind of a Quincy Up formation but in a with all the blowdown and stuff i was trying to anyway that's a whole other thing but i was still you know basic principles there's a lot of blowdown here because of the hurricane fiona there's a lot of upturned roots and stuff like that these things are literally creating one if not two complete walls of your shelter right away because some of these root yeah. systems are massive oh yeah no that's a, that's a fun method I've, I've i've played with that it's interesting since you get a natural water at the bottom of those roots so be careful yeah um going along with the shelter and this is one that people i think really misunderstand and and, and miscalculate uh, how important it is finding the right site location so um just going in the woods and saying oh, i'll just set up anywhere it's it's a recipe for disaster potentially right um and we've talked about this in the past and, and i'll give you some highlights you don't want to be at the highest point, because that's where you're going to tend to hit, hit more wind. You're going to be more visible. You're going to have issues. You don't want to be at the absolute lowest point because if it rains, that's what's the first thing going to flood, right? You don't want to be in anywhere where there's naturally going to be say mudslides and, and debris falling on top of you. You want to be a place that gives you some natural shelter to begin with, but is also close enough to resources to make it usable. So having a perfect shelter, in a perfect location, but you're having absolutely no access to food, water, and you know, it's not perfect. It's missing the key ingredient, which is the resources that you want to be there for, right? So No, and another thing to think about with location, as you said, low spot <laughs> is where water runs, but also in cold weather, your coldest level is the lower down you go. So don't set up in a valley in the middle of winter because <laughs> that's where the cold's gonna settle and it's gonna be harder to try and keep warm. I would argue the top of a hill is pretty well the same. <laughs> yeah. You kind of got to, like you were saying there, you kind of got to find the balance between where you're out of the weather, but you're not in a direct path of water, mud, falling debris, or whatever else, but you're also kind of close to your other necessities, like your food and water, if that happens to be something that you're looking for in your site location. If you're not interested in either of those, that kind of takes two major things out. If you brought all your food and brought all your water and you're not worried about it, you can find some really nice locations uh, that are completely out of the wind, they're nice and dry and all that stuff. But if you're like Ben and I, we generally always go around water. 
Um, we bring very little water with us. We always try to treat water while we're out there because water, one, is bulky, and two, is really heavy. Yeah. And, and the thing with even being close to water, and here's the thing, like, you don't want to be too close to water because as we found with the river camp that we did, um, that river just brought cold air to us constantly. Like, um, that can rob you of a lot of heat and, and vital resources. So, you know, it, we chose a spot for beauty uh, and for for other reasons. Uh, but we did have a downside because the closeness we were to water brought um, damp, cool air onto us. And had we been somewhere a little further away from that stream, the air would have been drier. And even though it may have been saying cold, you know, the same temperature, it wouldn't have felt as cold. And we kind of shot ourselves in the foot twice on that because it was a waterfall. So it was also creating a lot of additional humidity by, you know, basically creating mist or fog for lack of a better explanation right at the the bottom there because as it went down through it would vaporize or not vaporize but you know it would thin out a little bit and come back up as a vapor and in our defense we fully knew that was going to happen oh yeah Uh, we we said that right on day one yeah we chose that for its beauty and we knew we chose that for its beauty it was an ideal location except for the fact that it was going to be cold and we were cold um and we knew that right but no matter how cold you are, what can you do to help? Snuggle with a buddy. <laughs> you can always build a fire. You can always build a fire. So, well, you can't always build. If you have resources that will burn, you can build a fire. And it's surprising what will burn. A lot of stuff can be burned. Uh, so, peat moss, for example, can burn. People have heated homes for years with peat moss, so don't necessarily need solid wood. You just need something that's burnable and, 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 you know, that you can create flame with. So learning the skills, to light a fire, you know, starting the fire, building a fire, getting it to run and keep allowing it to continue itself. It's a skill that I practice. Pretty much every time you go out at least. Uh, And if you're like me with a wood stove at home, you practice it when you're building there. And honestly, not just how to make the fire, not literally putting your spark or whatever and lighting it into flame. It's how do you place your material while you're placing it down to build that fire? There's several different ways or methods that you hear us talk about in uh, different podcasts that we like for different situations. And we strongly recommend that you try looking into those and trying which methods work good for you in different situations. Because Ben and I will talk about like the log cabin or the teepee method. That's pretty classic for what we do because we're usually into, uh, you know, wetter areas and you got to build your your fuel up around it but at the same time there's other methods you can combine two of those um there's also like the reverse lay or the upside down fire things like that definitely check them out see what works for you uh and then you know a couple as well depending on your area and where you're at like an upside down fire works great in drier areas uh it's a little trickier here in the humid areas but it can be done as we're like log cabins, it's pretty classic. You can do whatever. What's going on with your video over there, Ben? That is great, man. Sorry, I just... That better? Okay, must have been a standing desk you just lowered or something, because that was just way too even. <laughs> really smooth, eh? <laughs> Sorry with that. No, also, a comment from the side here. Steve joins us, and he said... Let's talk about Ben's fresh new haircut. Looking sharp. Related? No. Impressive? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. No. Uh, and another good point he pointed out 
that we'll touch on right after fire building is ropes and knots and cordage in general. But let's finish up on uh, fire. So yeah, different fire lays is a big one. Yeah, practice it. Practice making firelights. Practice making feather sticks and kindling, and uh, practice with different tools and equipment you can bring. Right? Everyone talks with fire steel and lighters, um, but we've we've used the feather forever ma match to sort of like enhance the fire steel. Uh, I've seen people light it with steel wool. I've seen people do all kinds of fancy methods, but I don't care if it's a lighter, a match, a fire steel whatever all this gets something to start burning after that you need to make it you know you need to propagate that flame allow it to grow um <clears throat> and to me it's like raising a small child right <laughs> like they can be very finicky and they can be all over the place and if you don't have good material to really get it to a point where it's creating enough heat that it can really sustain itself it'll die um so you have to keep keep an eye on that first little bit uh, so practice with your methods and get comfortable with what works. Uh, and as you get a little bit further, you'll realize that fire is a science. It's, it's, it's very little to do with art uh, and very much to do with science. And once you get the science of it down, then you can, you know, really have some fun with it. But uh, you watch one of those really, skills. You really have to practice it. Yeah. But you watch somebody who's good at lighting a fire and it just looks so effortless and so smooth. And then you look at somebody who's still learning and it, it can be painful at times. You just want to take the tools away from them and do it for them because it's like, oh. <laughs> and I, and I both <laughs> like really skilled people see me lighting a fire and I know they're in pain. And then people who aren't, aren't very good at it at all, I'll see it. And they're just impressed by me. So I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, and you know, Robert's probably a little above me in fire making, but you know, we, we both enjoy it. Right. <laughs> You, you can get through the friction fire. I'm not much for friction fire. But. Yeah, but that was just more of a passional labor than anything, I think. But yeah. uh, there's still a lot of science to that. And if you wanted to build on that, there is more science behind the friction fires and stuff, which once you understand how it works, you can kind of backwards play it too, and that'll help you in some of the other simpler methods. Because, for instance, when you're doing a bow drill fire or a hand drill fire, everything has to be so perfectly set up you have to have so much fine tinders your tinder bundle has to be perfect you have to have so much kindling to get it going then you're you know you have to everything is done in increments very specifically and when you know the tediousness of that when you're doing some sort of friction fire you start doing it with your normal fires and you realize they go so much smoother so much quicker yeah because if you're putting that with friction fire it's a lot of effort anyone who's never tried it give it a try someday it it's not like you rub a stick together for a couple of seconds and boom, you have like this beautiful flame. It's like, you know, if the conditions aren't perfect, you could be at it for 15, 20 minutes. I've seen people do it way quicker, but if the conditions aren't right, you can be at it for quite a while and you are going to be hot. Uh, you, you do this on a cold winter day and I guarantee you, your coat will be open, your hat will be off, your mitts will be tossed and you're just still sweating it through, right? Uh, you, you work hard. A prime <laughs> example of super small details that could change the effect of a friction fire. Uh, we've told the story before, but back when I did the demonstration for the Nova Scotia bushcraft gathering where mm -hmm. I did it, it was out in the sun. I throw on a tarp down, went really easily. Uh, I think you were there for it, Ben. Then all we mm -hmm. did was move literally about 25, 30 feet off to another direction. That was somewhat more shaded uh, and a little bit more grassy. And just those two things alone, 
it was almost impossible to get an ember to catch. Yeah. And, and very much, you're right. Like choosing your site for fire makes a difference. Choosing, you know, the, the, the terrain you're on, like if the ground is moist, you gotta, you gotta create a barrier for that. So these are all skills. So again, one of the things, if you're bushcrafting, I think the ability to light a fire helps you with your fire purification, helps you with your shelter, helps you with everything. It is an essential skill. Learn to make a fire, craft that skill and do well. Um, the next one I have, and we'll get to ropes yet, is just uh, food gathering. Um, yes, we can all bring food, but that's not bushcrafting. That's just bringing food from home. Um, you know, there's parts of that, like, you know, prepping certain foods, dehydrating, stuff like that, that are pretty cool. But gathering that that food from the environment you're in is, is an essential skill. And, you know, that's something that, again, is, is start something can be done at any level. Choose things that you can easily identify, like berries or, or like basic fishing or even like some hunting, like snaring and stuff. Almost anyone can do these skills and build on those, and they're going to teach you more and more. But if you can gather food, you've got a massive skill. And if you can latch a hold of somebody that knows some basic like wild edibles and things like that, that is indispensable kind of uh, knowledge that you can gather there. And shameless plug here, uh, once again, not supported, but local guy, and I'm going to throw him a bone. Cliff Serpentine, we've talked about him, Serpentine, however you want to say his last name. He does, uh, he does kind of the wild edible courses. And if anybody is looking for a course like that uh, in Nova Scotia, because I don't know how far you want to travel, but Cliff lives here in Nova Scotia. Coming up next summer, he's putting on three larger courses, and he's already advertising for them, and I believe they're already about half full. Uh, I can't remember what the cost is there. It is a little bit of money. It's not dirt cheap. I won't lie to you. But the knowledge you get out of it is well worth the money, and if you have a small group, there's a discount, yada, yada, yada. I'll see if I can find the information. I'll throw it in the comments of this one once it's posted up. But, yeah, if you are interested in the wild edibles thing, um, Cliff's a great guy. He, he gives a lot of good information. Uh, the only thing I would say is he probably gives you so much, it might be too much to take in at once unless you're taking a camera and a notebook. If you're just yeah. showing up and trying to walk around, there is going to be so much information thrown at you that you're going to remember three or four out of the three or four hundred he might tell you. Because it'll just be in passing that he'll point at something and be like, oh yeah, that's totally edible or medicinal use. And unless you stop, write a few characteristics and shoot a picture... That's all it is. It's just a passing thought as he goes to the more, or what's in his uh, mind is more important things. Uh, is he a mushroom guy? Yeah, actually, Cliff does know quite a few mushrooms. Um, I would bank that he probably knows everything you're going to find in Nova Scotia. Probably a good deal of what you're going to find in eastern Canada. But for Nova Scotia, the last time I took his course, he 100% did cover a bunch of mushrooms. Uh, myself, like I said, I am really leery on mushrooms because I know they're all edible uh, at least once. It's just, can you eat them again if you're still alive? And I know there are some mushrooms, like, it does not take much of them to really hurt you. So yeah. I always am leery of mushrooms. That's my weakness. I self-admit that. And I even tried some of the apps like Ben has recommended. And I'm like 99.9% .9 confident on some of these mushrooms. But that point one is all it really takes to really ruin your day. You know what I mean? It does help to have people that are knowledgeable in your friend group and in your, your uh, acquaintance list or whatever you want to call them. And, and then you can sort of like share 
what you find. And sometimes they can give you some information. And sometimes, unfortunately, the information they're going to give you isn't a clear cut yes or no. They can sometimes tell you, well, this is part of this family and there's some that are edible and some that aren't. And you need to, you know, dig a bit deeper to identify it. And there's a few that I know I've, I've listened to Cliff and he's basically said like, yeah, there's edible versions of this particular plant, but as a general rule, he would recommend you avoid them. And in others, he's like, no, these are, are great. So yeah, look up someone like him or any anyone who's really knowledgeable. Use the uh, the the identification books and, and apps and guides, field guides. Uh, but that was kind of my last real one is plant identification. Above and beyond even just for food, just being able to identify plants is a massive skill. And uh, if fungus is in there too, right? Like anything that you can identify and then what its, its potential uses or dangers are is just, you know, so good. Uh, an example of non-edible reason you might want to know that is can that wood be used for certain functions? Like, is it strong enough to be really used for like a walking stick or, or a shelter? Or is it able to be used to help make fire? Or, you know, can you, can you gain something from that material? And uh, it's really neat to know that stuff. Can you make rope out of it? See how I found a way, a way to get into knots? Yeah, no, that's perfect. That actually rolls right into it. Uh, but yeah, knowing the characteristics of a plant is super important. Simply like you said, Ben, you may not be able to eat it. It may not be good for a whole lot of things, but maybe you can make great rope out of it. Or maybe a plant such as bulrush, cattail, whatever you want to call it, maybe it has different uses depending on the time of year that you actually find this, right? So it's all good things to real to learn and realize. And something you always told me, uh, when it comes to plant identification and things like that is don't just learn it for one time of the year. Take your time, no. check that sucker at different times of year, different seasons. Cause especially here in Nova Scotia, plants undergo a lot of changes depending on the season. Yeah. I mean, any, anyone can identify most trees in the summer. Uh, it's a much trickier thing to do in the winter, you know, like, it can be done, you know, and I think, you know, I can generally identify a maple or an oak tree or a poplar in, in the winter, summer, like year round. But there are still a few plants I look at. I'm not sure. Um, and in, you know, knowing where some of these plants are often can tell you too, like, you know, some plants have the rhizomes or the, you know, the, the root is edible, mm. but it's edible in the fall when the plants more or less died away. And if you don't know how to identify where it would be and where it was before, it'd be hard to find. Right? Something neat in the uh, comments? Nope, just kind of flipping through, reading, make sure we did not uh, not miss anything. To be completely honest with you, so, can you turn that off, please, Kenzie? So I think we're all good on those aspects, but yeah. So Let's rolling into ropes and knots, there's more than just ropes and knots when it comes to cordage. So when we say you should get good at cordage, it's yeah, you should learn a couple ropes and knots. The reality is there's hundreds, if not thousands of ropes and knots. Chances are you're only going to boil down to a handful that you are going to like, or that you are going to find useful for your situation. Uh, it's a good idea to try a lot of different knots because the ones I started bushcrafting with are no longer the ones I use. I found different knots that do things better 
or that I like more specifically for the situations I'm in. I've changed the way I set up ridge lines. I've learned more bites and hooks and uh, uh, press it knots and things like that that um, I've learned that make my life easier. And I phased out a lot of other knots that I thought were really good when I started out. Now, that's yeah. just the knot side of it. You should also learn a little bit about the cordage itself, how to maintain that cordage, how to pack that cordage up when you put it away. Because if you just ball it up and throw it in your kit bag, yeah. next time you go to pull that out, it's going to cause a heap of trouble. You know what I mean? And I see that a lot. The other big one I see is where somebody grabs onto it and they just wrap it around their arm and then they fold it over a couple times and run the, the rope over it. And it's this nice, kind of nice, tight ball. But once again, when you go to try and use that rope again, nine times out of ten, it's going to, you know, knot up. It's going to cause you some grief. Where if you were in a few uh, ways and rolls, it's pretty easy to put that rope away, still get the efficiency of it being tight and compacted, but with a benefit mm -hmm. of it being able to, you know, like pay out fairly easily without knotting up. And f to this point, Steve, who's joining us in the comments here, while we were out over the weekend... I actually showed him a really quick one, which I, I can't remember if he said he knew or not, but it was just, you know, uh, a basic figure eight roll on your hand for shorter chunks of rope. So anything maybe 50 feet and under a small diameter rope, you just do it around your hand. And the way it does is you pack it up nice and tight. But the one end that you leave out, if you just pull it and keep going, it comes out with no knots, no tangles, no nothing like that. And it's just real easy for handling smaller chunks of rope. Is that going to wor work for 300 feet of marine rope? Of course not. There's other things you can do with that. But the thing is, learn how to maintain and work with the rope that you're probably going to be working with mostly. Um, and I mean, a big one that a lot of people work with is uh, paracord. You know what I mean? That's a big one that seems to be a staple of the bushcrafting community. Everybody's There's literally forums that argue about uh, different types of paracord. And if it's seven strand, it's better than five strand and this and that and the other thing. So it is a good one to work with because you're probably going to hear a lot of uh, talking about it, if nothing else. But the reality is um, paracord has its drawbacks as it other ropes does. have their drawbacks. Like paracord, it's great, cheap, and plentiful, but it stretches, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it binds hard on itself. Now, where if you've got something like Amsteel, uh, it doesn't really flex, stretch, or bond on itself that hard. You can work with it a lot more, but you're going to pay a lot more money for it. So there's the other thing when it comes to cordage, is really figure out what works for you in the different types. Balance out uh, nice something that's going to fit your price range, and it's going to effectively do what you want it to around the campsite. And something I do is I carry different types of cordage with me. I have literally just cheap foam core dollar store cordage for something I just want to throw up quickly. Like uh, yeah. when I take the girls or something camping and I want to set up like a change room. All you need is a dollar store tarp and some dollar store cordage. Ultimately, I don't really care what happens to that cordage. If it ties up and binds on itself hard, I just cut it up. You know what I mean? You can always use short junks of rope somewhere. But now my ridge lines and stuff, I run that either by paracord or amsteel, depending on how far away it is and which if my amsteel will fit or not. Because amsteel ultimately is better for that. But paracord's a little less expensive, and if it's a longer distance, it's easier to keep that just cost-wise for me. Like, one of my favorite, it's kind of related to Amsteel, it's the uh, Lash It or, or Sling It. Uh, and that's a, a Dyneema rope that's smaller than most, and I think it's rated for 400 pounds. And honestly, I would choose that over paracord anytime, because paracord has approximately the same breaking strength, 
but is four times or five times thicker and stretches like hell where this, you know, this stuff mm. doesn't stretch. And I've made my ridge lines out of it. I've made guidelines and stuff out of it. And it's very light, very strong. Um, and I've also really enjoy, and I know you've seen me use this, the, the cheap, um, I think they call it Mason line from the dollar yes. store. And, uh, man, it, it's dirt cheap. It probably has virtually no strength. But I use it for guidelines all the time. It's you, you can get it in bright colors, pinks, yellows, oranges, no problem. And that's and the thing. Works. You can get it, like, in <clears throat> neon colors, which sticks out great in the dark if you're just tying something simple. You know what I mean? I really like, and you can get this in, in Paracord, but you can get it in other types, is the reflective line for guide mm -hmm. wires too, man. You get a good piece of reflective line, and you see that, like, the light just has to hit it at an angle from a ways away and it all lights right up. Like you can see where your shelter is. And yeah, if you're trying to hide from people, this is probably not the product for you. But if you go get up in the middle of the night, and go pee or go get some water or whatever, and it's pitch dark and you're looking for your site, it is a godsend. Like just turn your night light on and just look through the area and boom, your site shows right away. And that's what I use for the guy lines of my tarps. Uh, and I think I'm going to change the note for the, my actual tent, too, is the stuff with the little reflective striping in it. Simply yeah. because, yeah, if you're, you know, trucking through the woods or whatever, you go out to pee away from the campsite, much like you said, because you don't really want to pee on top of somebody else's tent or beside your own, for that matter. So you wander off a little bit. I tend to wander a little farther than I probably have to because I'm up. I want to stretch and all that good stuff. Anyway, it's not that I get lost and don't know where my campsite is. It's, I don't want to trip over those guy lines and stuff on my way back. 100%. Um, and, you know, I got some of that stuff a few years ago for Christmas. And like a kid at Christmas, I went and pulled a lot of my tarps and stuff out. And I put eight, 10 foot feet on every single tie point on some of my tarps. And I love it. It's great stuff. I highly recommend that. Um, yeah. Play with different ropes, though, and learn their 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 advantages and disadvantages. The... Um, Paracord, you can buy the specialty stuff with, with three or four different strands in it. So sometimes you get ones with fire lighting stands. You got a little wire one you can use for snares. You got a piece of fishing line so you can go fishing. All that stuff's really cool. Uh, but like you said, paracord stretches. Um, and that stretch may not make it the greatest. Uh, you set up a nice tarp, perfect lay, looks great. Come in the next morning, everything's all dropey because it's stretched out over the night. And, you know, it's now 15% longer than it was when you started it. That might be an exaggeration, but... No, it, it's true. I tried running a ridge line for one of my old hammock uh, out of Paracord. And literally, between when I threw it on before I went to bed and when I woke up, there was noticeable difference between it. You know what I mean? Like, it stretched a fair amount. A couple inches, I think. Paracord is also really, really good at cutting itself. Uh, if you've ever had to run paracord across itself, so like a trucker's hitch or whatever, mm -hmm. you can get away with short amounts of adjustment. But if you have to adjust any amount, so you have a long length and you're trying to adjust it up. I, I know I was trying to do it for something and I put some leverage on it and I started cutting paracord off left, right and center. Other ropes will handle that a bit better. Um, or if you can get some kind of snatch block, that would actually help a lot. Uh, <clears throat> I actually have pulleys I take sometimes just for that. Yeah. No, it's it's totally true. And that's the thing. When you get into playing with cordage, and it's one of my passions, uh, 
I love to play with it. I'm just not great at it. You know what I mean? I like learning about it. And I think when we did our 10 websites thing, I showed the animated knots website. I still have cordage sitting around my office here. And if I get bored or I can't sleep at night or something, I'll come in here and I'll throw on some animated knots and play with them and just figure out how I want to use that the next time I go out. Yeah. But uh, yeah, play, playing with rope can be a lot of fun. Um, ask a lot of people about that. They'll tell you stuff. So, yes, yeah, so those are some of the basic skills above and beyond that. Um, I would have to say cooking is, of course, one in there. Um, but, you know, if you can get fire and you can boil water, you can at least cook a minimal meal. Um, boiling has been a pretty standard for making food for years. So yep. there's your, your minimum ability. Um, <clears throat> I guess the last thing I kind of want to talk about, and I'm sure you may have some subjects you want to get out. We may have plenty of time. Um, just knowing how to prep. Uh, too many people go in the woods without having the proper prep, preparatory gear that they should. So there's there's a skill to prepare for what you expect, or prepare for what you you think is a possibility. Um, my wife started watching a show. I shouldn't be alive. Mm. And it's interesting how many people end up in the woods for you know that wasn't their intent. But they ended up in the woods and realized that they are woefully unprepared. Um, and I seen, you know, I see the joke all the time. You know, some guy that goes in for a day hike and a pair of flip flops and got like, you know, a Tim Hortons cup of water, and that's all he really had. You know, it's, you know, and gets lost. Some basic gear. We we've always highly recommended a small survival kit, maybe a knife. You know small shelter things like that and being properly prepared with the clothing you wear like you know flip-flops are not a good idea in the woods uh maybe at a campsite once you're set up and you're just lounging around anything beyond that not a seriously hike um slides whatever you want to call them and funny enough on that note i'll tell a little story simply because i already alluded to it but uh, i went out over the weekend uh, Steve McDonald's joined us here in the comments. It was him and his daughter that came with us. Um, and it was at a camp. It was literally a, like a full on camp. And we did bring a change of footwear for in the camp. Uh, I, I know I seen Steve had a pair there. I brought a pair of flip flops. Um, and it's not a bad idea to have something to change your feet into. That's a little airy when you are floating around the campsite. It lets a little air get around your feet, especially if you're prone to wearing boots, high cut boots, and you wear them fairly done up. Not a lot of air can get around your feet. You have a habit of wearing them nonstop because you're outside. As where you'd be home, you'd be taking them off a little bit. You'd be breathing. Uh, it, it's good to let your feet air out so you don't develop what's called trench foot or swamp foot. Uh, and honestly, it's just a, an excess buildup of moisture around your feet that could potentially split in between your toes. Or some bacteria could get in there and you get like athlete's foot or something like that. Which all can be cured with just a little bit of airing out. So, once again, that's something else that's kind of important to take. Yeah perfect example mel happened to be overhearing us um and this is a prime example of what she wears this is literally like nice thick bottom uh it's sturdy almost as a pair of sneakers but it's completely open so air can get through that and let her feet breathe while she is out you know just farting around the camp be it just sunning yourself or you're preparing a meal or whatever it's good to get your feet opened up get some air through it and that's true for the rest of your body depending on where you're at I mean, I, I shed down to kind of a tank top muscle shirt thing and that's just, it lets 
air get over me so you don't develop as much of a stink in all honesty you know what i mean it it stops you from sweating even during the summer when it's going to be warm sweating is not the best thing for your body when it comes to being out in the woods a long time unless you have a readily available way of cleaning yourself because otherwise you can get into chafing and stuff like that and it's just not great um and we've talked this before like i guess maybe this is a skill learning to to take care of yourself good hygiene good stuff if you wear a pair of boots for 24 hours and don't get your feet out, don't change your socks or anything, you are going to end up um, in a in a pretty hard shape. Um, I, I did time with the military, and that was a huge thing. Like we had foot powders, we made sure we changed our socks regularly. And what they tell you is you have to take care of your feet. Take care of your feet; they take care of you. Um, and yeah, if they sweat and they stay sweaty, then you're going to end up with potentially like. Oh, those are your water shoes, are they? Yeah. So another pair, another type of footwear is kind of like these. I call them yeah. water shoes, but they have a thicker bottom rubber on them, and then they're kind of a, I don't know, some sort of meshy material around the outside, which once again just allows air to get over your feet. Yeah, and I've often used that stuff type of footwear for uh, canoeing kayaking. That's where I use mine, in the canoe all the time. Oh, man. you got to step out. You know your feet are going to get wet. Don't wear your good boots into the water because then you just have wet boots, and it takes forever for a good pair of boots to dry out. Uh, But a good pair of what we would call water shoes, whatever you want to go with, I have ones called Rainmaker, made by Columbia, uh, or Drainmakers. And they just, like, the water goes in them and most of it dries out. It still takes a couple hours for them to dry, but they dry much quicker than things. And I can safely wear those into the water. And when I step out, my feet are relatively dry, right? So it's it definitely helps. Uh, yeah, so taking care of yourself. And, and it, it starts with the feet, but it's not the only thing. Um, if you have to go to the washroom, make sure you're good and clean when you're finished. Um, it doesn't take long, a day or two, and then you can be starting to get itchy, irritated. And it's, it's harder to, to fix that when you're in the woods. Same thing, like with your whole body, anywhere that gets sweat needs to be cleaned re- regularly. If you don't, the salts and dirts build up and it starts to chafe your skin and it causes irritated areas that get red and sore and it can be very, very painful. Uh, and something as simple as some wet wipes go a long way. Oh man, it's we've talked through that before. It's it's a staple for me, but baby even if wipes, you don't have I that, guess, is the other one. Sorry, not necessarily wet wipes, but baby yeah, wipes. Baby wipes. But even if you don't have that, a good handkerchief and a little bit of soap and you can like, you know, dampen that down and and wash yourself in a stream or whatever, boil a little bit of water and have some warm water, clean yourself good. Uh, Same thing with your teeth, you know, mouth hygiene really matters if they're everything. Keep, you know, keeping yourself clean in the woods is is paramount. And and I think a lot of people underestimate the importance of that. and you can you get away with it for a couple of days sometimes, but man, if it doesn't go well, it, it can go bad. And I know August around here where it's hot and humid every night. <laughs> it doesn't take long. You wake up with a slimy feeling on your skin the next morning. You know it's going to be a rough day. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Is there any other skills that we should be talking about? Well, just on a point um, where we talked about Cliff's course there, uh, if I can pull it up here, I believe 
Yep, just give us a second. Oh, that's why it's got the wrong one up. We've got our comments up. Um, just give me one second there, folks. Uh, I think this is it. There we go. All right, hopefully that comes up now. Yeah, see, he's got fungus right in there. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's three different courses coming up here. Um, this one is June 10th, and this one's being held at Fairmont Trail, five minutes outside Anakinish. August 26th, this one is in Victoria Park and Truro. And July 15th, that's in Marigamish, which is about halfway between New Glasgow and Anakinish. But anyway, yeah. For anybody that's listening audio-wise, if you're in Nova Scotia, you're interested in a wild edible course of some sort, uh, jump on our video. I got the information up here. Just pause it where you need to. All the information's on there where you should be able to get a hold of Cliff. Um, and get yourself signed up for this. Because once again, great course. Like, I mean, an amazing course from a man that knows so much more about eating stuff out in the woods than I do. I'm envious, in all honesty. Yeah, I wish I was closer. I might be able to take them up on that. I know a few years ago I, I wanted to do one and it just didn't work out. And I think the one I might have been able to make was already booked up. So, yeah, book yourself early. Plan on it. Make a day of it. It's, you know, New, Nova Scotia is a beautiful province. Get good chance if you're not even that local, you know, maybe somewhere else in the province or even the Brunswick or PEI, make, make the journey. I mean, we are talking about six months ahead here, a little bit of prep time, and I will say I am going to be at one of those courses. You know As it gets one? closer, I may mention which one, but I won't right now. Simply, uh, I don't think we have that much influence, but at the same time, just so uh, it gives everybody some time to get out there and get at it. Uh, and they fill super fast. Mel's listening to us in the other room there. And yeah, they, they go super, super fast. Yeah. Um, but even if you can't get to his, there, there are other people, you know, in different provinces and, and, and even different countries that do similar things, find them. Um, you know, it's worth, you know, a good Google search to find somebody who's doing it. Um, I've, you know, I've enjoyed every bit I've ever done with that stuff. I've had not many professional ones done, like if somebody who does it for profit, but growing up, you know, um, we did a lot of forging. We, we definitely, uh, for berries and different plants, you know, cattails was one that I, I always found was kind of interesting. But there's so many more out there, and there's so much you can do. <clears throat> and it's fun. It's really enter entertaining to do. And teas, you can make tea from so much stuff. It's shocking what you can make tea from. It would seem like there's fewer things you can't make tea out of than there is you can if you, once you learn how to do it. Uh, so definitely a skill that i think is worth worth taking the time to learn uh yeah for sure so anyway that's kind of everything i had to touch base on there there was one kind of thing that i wanted to touch on that's not really related uh but right before that just a comment from the section over here from steve basic skills going back to basics think systems sleep shelter cooking learn how to put each together and how to pack them it can be daunting to figure out what you take into the bush especially for starting out you know what i mean um and there's that rule of the five c's and things like that which is a good starting point but it's not the end all to be all in my personal yeah. opinion you know what I mean? Nothing more, just opinion. But if you are wondering what should I have, it's a good place to start. And then think about, well, what am I going to do 
or what am I going to be doing while I'm in the woods for this particular time? And then just kind of tailor everything around that is the way I like to do it. The stuff that I take when I go to the waterfalls is not the same stuff that I took when I went to uh, this weekend with Steve to the camp. You know what I mean? I tailor what I take to where I'm going and what I plan to do. Yeah. And I agree 100% with you there. Uh, but having a system, any system is better than no system. Um, you know, I think me and you have reached a point now where we kind of, rely on our own experiences more than say like acronyms and things like that. Hmm. Um, but you know, having a list never hurts. I've never regretted having a list of what I wanted to take and pack. And it's actually a really good method to start eliminating stuff. Cause once you write it down and think about it, you say like, ah, well, that's already covered by these two items. I don't really need it or, you know, um, but identify anything that's essential. And then make sure you have a backup for essential. We never want, and I, I talked to somebody, and this was not bushcraft related, but I use it because it's, it, it works so much in life. One is none, and two is one. And so anything you're doing in life that's you're doing, it's, it's absolutely essential that you have this. If you only have one of this, you don't have enough because what happens in that one thing breaks or isn't available? No, and I couldn't agree more. Sorry, I was down here playing with a knife at the same time. Um, I couldn't agree more. One is none, in all honesty. Because if all you take into the woods is one single Bic lighter, that I'm is somewhere down below me now. Um, right. If you only take the one Bic lighter and, for instance, you're boating or you're around water, you fall in and you lose it. Falls in your pocket for whatever reason, goes downstream. Now, where are you? If you had a second one in your backpack, at least you have another backup option or a ferro rod or anything. You know what I mean? Especially when it comes to things you're going to be counting on to keep you warm, keep you fed, keep you safe, keep you dry. It's definitely worth seeing if you can put a little bit of redundancy in there. And don't get me wrong. Some things can double as both. Put a big drum liner in there in a pinch. It's a poncho uh, or a tarp or a water collection. Like it can do a couple different things. And that's a great skill in its own. Learn how to double up on things and make them go a little further. But definitely sit down, think about what you want to do, where you're going, and the things that are going to be important to you at that location for what you're going to be doing. Yeah. Um, just trying to think of things that I care. Every day, and you've known me for a while, you'll never find me without with just one knife. Right? No. <clears throat> and I mean, much the same with me. Uh one of my knives is just a box cutter. It's like one of those Mastercraft box cutters with just a little blade on it. But you'd be surprised what you can do with that. I shaved some feather sticks uh, with it this weekend and started a little fire with it. Another knife that I carry a lot is this one now. A uh, buddy of mine gave me this. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's just some sort of um, drop point little knife. Don't get me wrong. It's not a bushcraft knife in any way, shape, or form. But it is... A knife that I, once again, I use this to start the fire the next day while we were out there because I didn't want to go into the camp and bang around and make a lot of noise while everybody was still sleeping. I just, I had another knife in my pocket, pulled it out, still worked exactly for what I needed it to. The open owls we had sent to us, but... Uh, that's it, one of the things I wanted to mention. That's what I was playing with down here was making sure this opened. Now that I had a little bit of time to work with mine, have you had a chance to actually get yours out and do anything with it? Mine has hardly left my side since I got it. Uh, and I mean, I, I put a little bit of oil on it to, to help it open and close because it was stiff when I started. Now it, it's very smooth. I love the locking device on it. It's a very sharp knife. It's a very good knife. 
Yours is orange. <laughs> What's that? Mine is, I said yours is orange. Mine is blue. Um, Mine's red, actually. It's just the, the white in oh. here. But a, a solid knife, I really enjoy it. It, it, it doesn't seem to weigh much. It's, it's, the ridges is, is square enough that I think I could use it as a fire, just to light a fire steel. I tried it. It does strike very well. Um, it does stain the back of it a little bit, but nothing that's going to hinder it. You know what I mean? Just if you are looking for that absolute perfect brand new look, you may not want to hit it with a ferro rod. But uh, for me, it was one of those things. We did get sent these with the idea of doing some testing on them. And it was a fellow named Rocky that sent them to us. And a huge shout out to him. Once again, thank you, sir. I know I talked to you in email not that long ago and said we still had them. We we're working on them. But there's the proofs in the pudding. Both of us have them. We have been using them uh, as kind of daily drivers for a little while just to see how they were. Some of the things I noted about the Open L, just while we're on the topic and I got a second, was as you said, Ben, it was a little stiff to open from the get-go. Uh, but that's just where it was new. Mine's still a little bit stiff, but it's not terrible. Uh, I find mine makes a really good kitchen knife, not like yep. kitchen here in the kitchen, though it works really good. But when I'm cooking at camp, this tends to be the one I keep in my pocket when I'm opening food or I'm working around food or I want to cut my steak or something like that. I always try to keep one knife that way. It's not being cross contaminated with other stuff. You know what I mean? I keep it clean, but this is kind of my go-to kitchen knife when I'm out in the woods. It, it is a relatively thin blade, which makes means it cuts soft stuff super well, and it, it's awesome for most cooks. I would use it on light woods. Uh, I wouldn't use it on the hardest of woods. I, I do feel like you could damage the blade doing that. You can that. roll the edge pretty quick on it. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, it has been such a solid little knife, um, and so I have enjoyed it, and it is it's definitely become one of my favorites. And it's I carry it on a daily. It's, it's part of my EDC right now. Um, <clears throat> alongside that, like I said, I always have at least two blades on me. The other thing is a small Swiss army. Um, you can't beat them. Um, again, a very solid thing. Uh, mine's not a Swiss army. I'm not so fancy, but I do have a Leatherman multi-tool and that very rarely is not within our, or not out of arm's reach with me. But yeah, um, you know. Basic skills. I mean, if you got some rope and you got a knife, you can do a ton bushcrafting. Um, and it, that was something that, you know, it stuck with me from from childhood. My grandfather, uh, he he used to say, and I don't know if he told me or just someone else told me he used to say this, but I know it's always stuck with me. He said a man always has uh, some rope and a knife in his pocket. And you know, he I think growing up he always did. He never went anywhere without it. But even as a as an adult, like when he was a kid, I know he carried, but even as an adult, uh, he was a heavy duty mechanic. He worked on some pretty hard stuff and he got himself out of a lot of jams with just the knife and a rope. Like yep. you can fix so much stuff with a knife, a knife and a, a rope. Uh, so it's part of my basic toolkit. I am. Yep. Not, and that's the other thing you mentioned EDC, which is everyday carry Yeah. for somebody that is out and about it is not a bad idea to get into some sort of everyday carry uh like ben said generally that's two knives be and i'll be completely honest with you this is one of my main drivers and we've always made fun of it here but this is my other one which yeah. is basically the box cutter this isn't the box cutter one i'm telling you about but this is basically a box cutter uh but it's a super micro knife 
really well built. Uh, it's called a fat PP. Uh, my wife got it for me as kind of a joke, but that's literally like FPP or fat letter P letter P. If you search this in your search engine, we'll bring this up. It was a kickstarting thing. They just launched it a month or so ago. And I mean, for what it is worth, it is super well built and it does everything. The spine actually is sharp enough on it. You can use it as a striker. Yeah, I mean, if I had to choose a few other things that I would want in my uh, EDC, I'm still looking for a, a uh, flashlight that meets my criteria. I've yet to find one that I, I've really fallen in love with. And usually I carry some kind of lighter. Honestly, I've rarely been beat by a, a Bic. A Bic seems to be a solid one. But I have some beautiful Zippos that I love. Um, So, you know, with that, I would be, you know, I'd be pretty confident that I could get out of most situations with those basic tools. Yeah. And I tend to agree with you. So just the last couple comments here, uh, because they're popping up on the side and I want to make sure we get to everybody. We have Christopher Jones. My father always said that not having your knife in your pocket when leaving the house is like leaving with no pants. Um... Then Red Bear Tactical, don't ever remember a grandfather not having a Swiss Army knife. And my O-White Warrior Mini 2 is always in my pocket. Uh, and I don't know which one mine is here. I think it might be... I have an SR... S2R, sorry. That's my O-White yeah. S2R, and uh, I have it in one of these little pouches. And if I'm going to be doing anything... It basically just goes on my hip along with my multi-tool, and that gives me my flashlight, my multi-tool, a lighter and a pocket knife, my phone, and generally, I'm pretty good to go. Yeah. <laughs> Those are some pretty solid things to have in your in your kit. Um, yeah. I, can't, I can't even imagine going out. And I, you know, I think I'd almost be as likely to go out inside without my pants than without my knife. I, I really do. Um, it pains me not to take my knife with me some places like my work i'm only allowed a box cutter so my knife comes out it goes in the cup holder of my truck when i get out of the truck and it goes back in my pocket when i get back in and it's a weird feeling without it for the remainder of the day yeah. likewise uh when i go like i've had to fly in the last few years a bit and it is painful to me it's it, it is a literal torture when i get in the line and I, my knife has to be securely put somewhere not on my person you know not on my carry-on so it's, it's in in checked baggage or i don't have one so i spent you know a week in texas with no knife that was rough on me <laughs> nearly went and bought one just to walk around and throw it out before i left uh but that's you know that's sort of it right when you do um over that, i always carry a watch now too i always have a watch on me and depending on where I'm going, depends on what kind of watch I take. If I'm going yes. to the woods, like this is a smartwatch. It does all the smart features, all that good nonsense there. I don't know if people can see it. Uh, yeah, you should be able to see different things changing there. Um, if I'm going into the woods, this is not the watch I take. A lot yeah. of people would argue, well, why wouldn't you? It has all the bells and whistles. It's got a built-in compass, this, that, and the other thing. Battery life. I don't know how long I'm going to be in there. I grab my old analog watch, which I can use as a compass because I can use the minute hand and the hour hand with the sun and I can get my bearings and the battery's good for like 15 years, <laughs> guaranteed. 
Uh, it doesn't rely on backlighting, which is going to eat more of the battery up and different things like that. I just like going back to the basics when I go to the woods. Something that's going to last a long time with very little complication. Yeah, and a, and a solid options for that is, well, I mean, right now I have a, a Timex. The Indiglo on that thing is amazing. Uh, I have another one. It's an Expedition version, almost the same module. Runs this one, like you said, good for 10 years. A Casio. Casios make some beautiful watches that are pretty well invincible. Uh, or I, I have, uh, this is a manual. It's automatic. It, it, it doesn't even take a battery. And Just wind it. I think it would survive a nuclear blast. So, <laughs> you know. But a basic watch. It's a good thing to have. Yeah. Um, like you said, you can use it for a lot. Uh, but it's it's just something. Knowing the time can can be very useful. Being able to time things, you can figure out distances, heights. You, you can use that for a lot of stuff, right? You can figure stuff out using that information. Um, so, yeah. But in any case, we hit our hour. I'm sure and, we and could I, keep going quite easily, but I think we should probably pack her up there unless you get anything immediately pressing. No, no. I've covered everything I want to cover. Um, this was a, you know, an information podcast this, today, just things that you can be working on. If you're just getting into this, or even if you've been into this for a while and wondering where do you need to start focusing your skills, that's what we consider our basic, you know, kit gear knowledge, work on those things. Everything else comes from those, um, you know, it's, it's the basics and get, getting those just makes everything else easier. I Get can't add anything to that, bud. That was perfect. <laughs> Get out there. Enjoy. Have fun. Let us know how it goes. Night, everybody. We'll see you next time.